Hello and welcome to Podcast of Ideas. I'm Alistair Donald, co-convener of Battle of Ideas Festival and the coordinator of the international satellite events that we run as part of the festival. This podcast is the second in our series that offers international perspectives on the coronavirus pandemic. We're seeing increasing interest in the problems that countries across the globe are facing and how they are responding to dealing with the crisis. So we've brought together some Battle of Ideas Festival speakers and representatives of some of our partner organisations to give us a glimpse into what's happening in the cities and countries where they are based. In this episode, we'll be hearing from colleagues in the United States, Sweden, South Africa and Singapore. Joining us from upstate New York is Nancy McDermott, a researcher and writer and advisor to Park Slope Parents, the Resources Network for Families in Brooklyn, New York City. We also have Johan Verfalt, Artistic Director of Talks, Films and Debates at Kulturhuset Stadstitern in Stockholm, who for the past six years have hosted our Swedish Battle of Ideas satellite events. We've got Matthew Kruger joining us from Johannesburg, where he works as a law consultant specialising in corporate, constitutional and human rights litigation. And from Singapore, we have Stuart Derbyshire, Associate Professor in Psychology at the National University of Singapore and the Clinical Imaging Research Centre. So, welcome to you all. Thanks for uh, coming on to Podcast of Ideas. I wanted to start by just uh, going round you all and getting a sense of where you are and what's going on in your cities and your, your countries. So if I just uh, start with Nancy. Um, obviously, the United States seems to be a bit in the eye of the storm over the past week. So wh- where are you and, and what's happening with you? Right. Well, I'm about four hours um, north of New York City. We're, we have no, nothing like the cases that they do in the city. I think uh, last night they had the largest number of deaths and, um, you know, it's quite, quite bad down there. We're starting to pick up here. I think there are maybe 38 cases in our county. So right now um, things are pretty quiet, but uh, we're all in lockdown and people are still nervous. You know, you see people wearing masks and, um, and uh, school's been canceled. So, but you know, if you, if you didn't know, it was a lockdown um, and you were just driving around, uh, you probably wouldn't know that anything was going on because there's still you know, cars on the road, there's still people going about their business. It's just uh, mainly the, the shopping is closed. In the schools and if i if i sweep across the world because that's what we're doing it's your morning nancy if i come to you on uh next in sweden uh where where are you john and how, how's it going in stockholm where you are yeah so i'm i'm at home in my kitchen looking out uh, it's a beautiful spring day i was just out for a walk here and uh, i'd say that probably if i didn't know i would maybe think there's a few uh, less people than normal out on the walking along the lakes, but um, it seems, mostly it seems pretty regular, you know, it's a lot of people out, people having barbecues in the park and stuff, uh, keeping a bit of a distance, but it's, uh, I mean, we're definitely not uh, in lockdown, as I'm, I'm certain you know, since Sweden has been sort of put forward as the exception in terms of strategy throughout the, through all over the world, and um um, I mean, there are there are truths, and also there are some sort of misconceptions about I think the Swedish strategy. I mean, the general idea is that try to keep things as normal as possible and carry on. But then, of course, there are uh, like big public gatherings and so on have been 
have been banned for weeks. So it's not that everything is normal, but it's, it might look normal on the surface. And uh, people out and about, but uh, Matthew down in Johannesburg, uh, that's possibly not the case with you, I suspect, or at least not uh, legally if they are out and about. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. We'll probably come to later about how the lockdown is operating in different parts of South Africa. But uh, legally speaking, at least, we are in, I suppose, what would be called a hard lockdown. Um, we People are only allowed outside if they are essential service providers or if they're uh, going to obtain essential goods, so basically food and, and things like that. Um, outside of that, um, everyone's been confined to their homes. We're at day 13 here. Um, it's very evident when you go outside that it's locked down, at least in the part of the world that I'm in, which is that kind of suburb part of Johannesburg. And as for the, the, the yeah, day 13 of 21, um, we have about 1,700 uh, cases so far, though we, there've only been about 45,000 tests, I think. So we, our capacity to to the testing is obviously a lot lower than other countries. So our health minister does keep warning us that, um, that it, it doesn't give a true, true estimate of the scale of the, the virus present. Uh, so day 13 of 21, and it's all very unclear as to what, what's going to happen next. Okay, and Stuart, uh, finally, I'll, I'll come to you. It was it was morning for Nancy. I suspect we're stopping you in Singapore from getting to bed. So, uh, uh, how is it with you? So yeah, we've had a, a strange, um, slow walk into lockdown. So about ten weeks ago, we first started changing our behaviour, um, contact tracing, social distancing. But on the whole, we've been pretty lucky. Until Monday, um, most bars, restaurants, and shops were still open. And then on Tuesday, everything was closed. And it, it, it's really peculiar in Singapore because everybody pretty much eats out. You know, lots of people don't have cooking facilities at home and don't cook at home. Um, so it's a very public place. And you see people out at the restaurants and the bars regularly. So for them to be suddenly emptied um, is quite a shift. Great. Um, so um, I want to come to all of you uh, just to get a take on, on how it is that uh, your governments have been responding uh, to this crisis. Um, and Nancy, I think we should probably come to you first because I've been particularly struck uh, over, the, you know, over the weeks of this crisis by just the seeming level of chaos at a government level. Uh, in terms of how America's uh, been dealing with it. I mean, some of the stories the last few days, um, you know, you just look at footage of huge queues uh, for for food and for basic necessities. There's talk yesterday of uh, temporary graves within New York City parks. Um, and then the, 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 the take on Trump has really been that he's been really inadequate and incapable of, of responding uh, to this crisis. So just, just give us a sense of, of how it's been. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, been kind of, um, it's been kind of awful. I mean, Trump's uh, response has been just transparently about uh, deflecting any responsibility from, from himself. We've been watching the briefings uh, at, at, you know, as things have got worse. And I, I don't know, it's just, it's just pretty awful. The, the response within our state has actually been pretty good. Um, I mean, Cuomo's uh, briefings are really clear. Um, uh, it seems to have a handle on, you know, what the situation is. He's taking it seriously. He's looking forward 
Um, he's been surprisingly reluctant to uh, crack down on people not following guidelines. Now, it's interesting the the sort of the relationship between Trump and Cuomo because you know Cuomo came out and was very clear and decisive about what was going to happen in New York, and Trump seems to be kind of following Cuomo. I mean, he's just he, he's kind of all over the place. And then you watch Cuomo, and then like the next night or later on that day, Trump will sort of edge his way closer to what Cuomo is saying to do. But I mean, I guess the the, the point for me has been that um, uh, we have uh, a federalist system, system. So we've all these states, and sometimes that's a really good thing. But in this, but in this instance, if you don't have strong central leadership, it can just all fall apart. Um, and Trump's just been um, has been. Uh, uh, it's just a mockery. Nancy, I, I was interested in the extent to, to which you think that uh, the kind of central authority in America has been damaged by this process, because even in advance of the pandemic, there was uh, lots of people were talking about the way that Trump has failed to take uh, the business of government seriously. There's been um, over yesterday and, and, and this week, there's been the, the squabbles, in some cases through the courts, about whether to hold the Wisconsin elections. There seems to have been a gathering pace of discussion about state secession and an emerging discussion around there. So is, is this really um, something that's been uh, extremely damaging, possibly in the long term, to Central American authority? I think that it predates the crisis. I mean, there's been a division in the country for a long time between um, the suburban uh, educated elites and the rest of the country. And Trump's election really reflects that. Um, it's it's like there's so little faith uh, in Washington, not necessarily because it's central, but because for so long it was dominated by these the elites. And it was almost like the majority of the country were excluded from politics. But what's happened is that, you know, there is there is a sense in which the crisis has been this catalyst. And so all of these inherent problems the real implications of what happens when you don't have not just any central authority, but any trust uh, in government, when that falls apart, you know, it just it just becomes um, it just becomes chaos. Have you subscribed to the Academy of Ideas newsletter yet? It's the best way to stay up to date with the work we're continuing to do during these strange times. Hear from our director, Claire Fox, stay informed about what events we're planning for the autumn in 2021, and most crucially, keep up to speed with the numerous Zoom book clubs, salon meetings, and lectures we plan to release in the coming weeks and months. Follow the link at the bottom of this podcast to sign up. Johan, so I want—I did want to come to you because that, that question of authority is quite interesting in Sweden, I think. I mean, obviously, Sweden has taken a very different approach uh, to all of this, and it's much commented on that uh, it seems to be the, the one country, or, or certainly the, the most, um, the, the country with the biggest profile that's not uh, going for a lockdown. Can, can you just explain a little bit about why it is that uh, Sweden has taken this decision and how it's affecting things? Well, yeah, I, th- I think there are First of all, you probably need to look at Swedish uh, history and, and sort of the Swedish social contract because it's uh, 
as opposed to the US, then Sweden is centralized country in terms of government, but it's it's also decentralized in the way that uh, the governmental agencies in Sweden are very independent from from the government. Uh, I mean, it's sort of like a mix between expert rule and the rule by the elected officials. If you understand what I'm, the Swedish uh, prime minister is, is quite uh, Stefan Löfven. He is quite reluctant to make a decision which will not be based on the recommendation from the Swedish public health agency. And this is a very long and strong tradition in Sweden, dating back actually to the. Uh, 17th century, where where we had uh, where something was formed called the Embetsmannaverk, which were, was basically the beginning of, of the Swedish bureaucracy. So it goes back several hundred years and uh, has sort of shaped, I think, uh, an idea of how to govern the country. There's a broad majority for it, a broad support. Um, uh, a high, Sweden is a high trust country, meaning that the uh, the, the citizens trust the state, but the state also trusts the citizens to, to sort of make uh, rational decisions uh, based on recommendations, not just laws. So we're seeing a how several hundred years actually of Swedish bureaucracy is now playing out in, in the decisions the government is making. Is, is there a level of um, you, you, a comfort within Swedish society at, at this decision? Because I, whenever I read about it, I, I, I see a number of different things. On, on one level, people seem content to uh, go a different route. But on another, I think there was, um, there was a petition by 2,000 doctors and medical experts and scientists uh, arguing for a much firmer lockdown. So kind of where does the balance lie on this in Swedish society more broadly? I would say that uh, if you look at the polls, uh, the few polls I have seen this, uh, there, there's a broad support. Uh, I, I think that probably three quarters of the, of the people polled support uh, the, the government strategy which is uh, listening to the public health agency and basically following their recommendations. Um, but of course, there are also, uh, and there still is a, a lively debate uh, raging because there are a lot of people, of course, who don't agree with these measures, think that the, the measures sh- should be harsher, uh, that we should go into a more firm lockdown than, uh, than we are now. And that also, you can see that uh, trust in the in the agencies have uh, have grown throughout the crisis. Trust in government has grown, and the Social Democratic Party, Party who is the, the main government party, have also risen the polls in the last weeks. So, but I guess that is also dependent on how things actually pan out. So, if very many people start dying uh, sooner or later, of course, uh, there will be. A, a, a shift and i have noticed in in sweden that the you know like everywhere else the the death rates are um moving upwards over the past especially the past week or so is there a nervousness now about retaining this um strategy or or does it look like it's going to hold for the foreseeable future i'd say that it probably will hold um if you look at the death rates stockholm has sort of been uh, ahead of the curve in sweden but the curve in stockholm is now according to the latest numbers, uh, flattening out. Whereas in bigger cities, Gothenburg and Malmö, and also in the southern regions of Sweden, which is more densely populated, the, the, the numbers are now rising. So this, of course, is, is too early to actually say anything for certain, but it seems like yeah, uh, 
Stockholm might might now be past the peak, whereas the rest of Sweden are getting closer to the peak. And I would say that if that is the case, I don't think that this strategy will change uh, uh, in a a sort of big way. I don't think we'll go into a formal lockdown. If you look at our our neighboring countries, Denmark, uh, who has been in in lockdown uh, and closed the borders uh, a few weeks ago, are now talking about... uh, uh, you know, opening up again. So, um, and obviously Denmark is very closely connected to the south of Sweden. There's a bridge between Malmö and Copenhagen and so on. So they're basically, if Denmark opens up, the sort of whole Malmö-Copenhagen region will become one one uh, sort of uh, region again. Let, let me come to, to Matthew now, uh, what's going on in, in South Africa, because uh, it's interesting when you look at the figures, actually, for, for, for South Africa, because there actually is quite a low number of cases still and uh, a reasonably low number of deaths. I think it's still 1,800 or so cases and 13 deaths, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm right. In the news has very much been um, a quite ferocious uh, response, really, to this by uh, the South African authorities. Um, been interested that on, on one level, um, it's, there seems to be quite a lot of criticism. I mean, President uh, Ramaphosa you know, it started it off, the response off by visiting that army base and his kind of full military garb and uh, saying that the army was going to go out and defend the people. And I mean, unsurprisingly, in, in, a, in, in a state with very high levels of unemployment and quite high levels of disease as well, um, the chaos that ensued was, uh, you know, very, very visible. But on the other hand, I've read some articles as well. I mean, one article in the BBC uh, described uh, Ramaphosa as a formidable, uh, compassionate character who's handling it very well. So kind of, where, where is, the, is there any balance in this? Where, where, where do you stand? Yeah, I think, I think that BBC article got a lot of media here at the time. Uh, I think it's kind of dripping in condescension, actually. Then there's this picture that people seem to have of Ramaphosa as, as you, formidable but compassionate as a modern version of the big chief kind of uh, attitude towards us but perhaps more 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 to through the strategy um i mean there's there has on the one hand been a very coherent and seemingly informed response on the part of the state to what's going on um the the president through his uh, regular press briefings and the minister of health along with other members of cabinet do seem to project a, a competence and a confidence in what they're doing which does give you some sense of uh hope in a strategy. Yet on the other hand, there's also a very realistic uh, reaction to the strategy. We're currently in a three-week lockdown. It seems to be that it will be extended in some form. It's currently in a very stringent or hard lockdown form. It appears it will carry on in some similar way going forward. And the problem with that, of course, is is I think twofold. Um, One, South Africa, like most other African countries, we simply don't have the resources that a place uh, that countries in Europe do. We to shut down our economy for three weeks, let alone three three months, uh, would, is is obviously catastrophic. And that's not obviously to think of lives in terms of money. It's the reality is is that when people can't go to work, both through formal and informal means, they don't get food. Um, we we don't have five hundred billion pounds to keep people at home for three months or $2 trillion to spend on a stimulus. It's just, 
It's just the money's not there. And it's just simply not a strategy that can be sustained for an extended period. And then on the other hand, even if we did have that, people like me who live in you know, the suburbs of Joburg, I can uh, lock my front door and go to the grocery shop when I need to and be relatively safe. That's simply not the reality for the vast majority of people in the country living in townships or informal settlements. People live on top of each other. Many people don't have access to running water or electricity. So the, the, the hygiene levels are you know, simply not what they need to be. You can have all the education about washing your hands, but if there's no running water, it's very difficult to do that. Uh, there's also the difficulty regarding our culture. Um, we are a constitutional democracy. Uh, we very much embrace uh, various liberties naturally given our history. The army and the police have historically uh, under apartheid oppressed people. People don't want to be oppressed again. Uh, we, we, so we don't have either on the one hand American or European wealth to sustain a lockdown. And on, the other, and on the other hand, we don't have the luxury of Chinese autocracy where we can simply uh, compel people to stay indoors. Um, so when people are shot at with rubber bullets, when they are whipped, when they are forced to leapfrog by the army for, bra for, for breaking regulations, that naturally generates a harsh reaction. So we, we have a number of, of difficulties with the strategy, yet people also, the, the response to that is generally, well, what else are we going to do? Uh, it's necessary. And I'm, I find that particularly troubling or particularly worrisome whenever we confront these sorts of policy decisions with the answer, what else are we going to do? Um, I think that's very dangerous. In terms of the, the demographics of, of, of South Africa, I mean, obviously it varies, I think, fairly radically within different places in South Africa as well, but um, perhaps not quite as old a population as, as in Western Europe. I, I, I think the average age probably 65 or somewhere round about there. The threat to, uh, you know, no, to, to the 80-year-olds uh, plus 70-year-olds is not there perhaps to the same extent as, as as, as in in Europe, but also the measures taken in South Africa would seem to uh, much more likely affect the young, where uh, malnutrition and uh, uh, pre-existing conditions are already concentrated. So presumably that's not helping either. The the lockdown is perhaps even endangering the younger section of the population uh, more. Yeah, it is true. We do have a much younger population than uh, than Europe, um, and so in that respect, the vulnerabilities that uh, say European countries have, it's less pronounced. But of course, we also, we have our vulnerabilities, not just nutrition, et cetera, but also from HIV and AIDS and in tuberculosis. Um, we still have about 100,000 or so people die from AIDS and tuberculosis, preventable, communicable diseases, much like this every year. And so, yes, we have done quite well in over the last 15, 20 years in rolling out antiretroviral programs and diminishing the levels of tuberculosis, but we still have significant problems there. So if the virus gets out and doesn't, so to speak, attack our older people because there's less of us, uh, less older people, it, 
we do have other entry points, so to speak. Stuart, uh, Matthew mentioned that um, South Africa doesn't quite have the uh, the powers of uh, centralized powers of the likes of China to, to lock places down in that way. I mean, obviously, Singapore has been in the news very much because it has got quite uh, centralized powers and it has been uh, had, a, had an ability to um, to take control in, in that kind of quite state centralized way although i always find there's a bit of confusion about the way that singapore is discussed because on the one level uh, for anybody in the uk that's just been through a brexit discussion uh, it's always singapore on thames that kind of great unregulated free market uh, island uh, whereas on the other hand it's always talked about as the country that uh, or the state that doesn't uh, allow people to chew gum so kind of there's there's a, a bit of confusion in in itself about about Singapore, but kind of, I read somewhere that uh, twenty thousand migrant workers were now locked up within their neighbourhoods and, uh, you know, completely unable to mix or even leave their flats. So, so what what's going on with you? Yeah, so you're quite right. Singapore is a a mixed bag and a quite a confusing place in many ways. So it it really does epitomise that um, balance between security and freedom and, and how to work that out. And in Singapore, there's a very heavy emphasis on obedience, on authority, on rules and laws. And generally speaking, you do have quite a conformist population here. Um, and then you do have also have this strange mix of different nationalities. Um, most of the hard work gets done by Indian and Bengali um, immigrants. You've got quite a large expat community here. Um, so you've got this swirling mix of different cultures. And then on top of that, it, it is at least nominally a democracy. So the old joke about, you know, I never vote in elections because the government gets in is, is quite true here. The, the People's Action Party always win a, a large majority, but they do occasionally get hit. They do occasionally lose some seats. They do have elections every four years. So they do have to at least pay attention to what their population is doing. So when this um, coronavirus broke, I think probably Singapore was the perfect place to, to, to handle it. Um, they already had measures in place from the SARS outbreak of 2003, I think it was. And th at that point, they introduced contact tracing procedures. They introduced distancing procedures. And so in the middle of January, they started to slowly roll those procedures out again. And I, I was quite resistant at first. I didn't um, like that I had to log myself everywhere I was going. I was told that I had to take my temperature twice a day and all workers in Singapore were doing this and putting it into a website. Then I had to start taking photographs of my meetings and logging who was there. Um, and then we were sitting a meter apart. And there's this gradual, slow introduction of different measures. At least on the surface, um, those measures appear to have been quite successful. The number of cases here is, I think, now just ticked above 1,100. Um, we've only had six deaths and we're looking in pretty good shape compared to most of the world. We will find out whether that's really true. I'm still, I still think it's too early to tell, but certainly at this point in time, it looks like Singapore is, is a success story. And just in terms of these, uh, the, the apps and things that, that, that have been used, I think there's one called Trace Together, which seems to use kind of Bluetooth readings to judge distances between people and then map and track 
uh, everybody. I mean, is is that how, how widespread is that then? And it's it's quite interesting because lots of people in the West here are talking about it being the potential solutions that we all have to implement here in order to get out of lockdown. So kind of interested in what's going on and how it works in Singapore. It's hard to tell, and and there's no means by which you can get statistics. Um, it, it's too secretive. They're not going to tell us how many people have downloaded it. My instinct is that not as many as you might think, because um, it, it is a, a rule-based society. But that all means that you're not really necessarily winning people to the values of what it is you're trying to do. And so people will look for loopholes. And if they don't have to do it, then they won't do it. Um, I, I didn't download it. Um, I didn't hear about it. Um, it hasn't been widely advertised. I haven't been email bombed about it. Um, it hasn't been put on the side of buses, that kind of thing. So again, it makes me think maybe they don't feel they absolutely need um, this particular technology at the moment. It is a great piece of technology. I mean, it's very clever. Um, you know, the basic idea is, is that if you will come within a distance of someone who's got the virus, um, you will be beeped, pinged, and you're told to go and isolate. And it's, you know, that's, that's pretty clever. And that is essentially what we've been doing with a more paper and pencil system. Everywhere you go, your temperature is taken, you record your telephone number, and if there's an outbreak nearby, if there's a case nearby, you will then be contacted and you'll be tested or you'll be isolated. So it's trying to do that, but in a more sort of um, systematic, immediate, and less obviously intrusive um, manner. Okay, I was I was interested in in um, the trace the fact that the Trace Together apps has been made open source, uh, encouraging people to take the technology and and introduce it in their own countries. It seemed to be a, a one of these strange contradictions of uh, a celebration of open source software and and kind of the freedom and techno optimism, uh, but uh, with a view to getting people to uh, submit to surveillance. Yeah, I do think there's a genuine interest intention there you know like to what extent do we trade in a certain amount of privacy and freedom for a certain amount of safety now i'm i'm pretty old-fashioned on the whole i want to keep the state out of my life as much as possible they have way more power than i do you know they've got the police the law courts the army behind them and i'm just me and my resources so i don't particularly want to encourage the state to get involved in my personal activities and i want to keep them out of my life as much as possible but when you look at a place like Singapore, there's a, there's a couple of mitigating factors there. One is that it is a small place and it is completely reliant on food from outside, water from outside, resources from outside. So it is a, a bit of a, a fragile place and it would be fairly easy for this place to, to face some serious problems. And then also, you know, it is a well-operated, well-organized, well-run place. You know, everything works here. The MRT works on time, the streets are safe, um, the water does come in, the food does come in, and you have a, a certain liberty that comes with that. So it, it really does express that ancient, you know, discussion about what is the balance between liberty and security. Hello, Claire Fox here, Director of the Academy of Ideas. If you're stuck at home with more time on your hands, why not explore the Battle of Ideas Festival archive? On our SoundCloud, we have years worth of political, cultural and scientific debates on everything from climate change to Rembrandt, and they're all for free. Take a tour through years of the Battle of Ideas Festival by clicking on our Podcast of Ideas SoundCloud. 
Okay, I just wanted to whip round the, the, the other three of you as well for some thoughts on this. And maybe come to, to Nancy first, because uh, America being land of the free and, 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 and all of that, this is now becoming, a, some of these measures are becoming central to the question of how uh, Western countries emerge out of any lockdown situa- situation. I mean, I, I appreciate that America is very much in the eye of the storm just now, but I, I think the emerging conversations are about how we get out of lockdown so in terms of the, the kind of restrictions on freedoms, Nancy, what's the discussion in America just now? Well, it's interesting because, you know, we were talking about authority before, and I think that the, it, it kind of manifests at different levels all the way down from the top um, of society. So um, on the one hand, people are pretty willing to isolate themselves, they're actually pretty responsible or at least, you know, pretty pragmatic. But then the problem is when somebody doesn't conform to that, you know, what do you do? So for example, um, we had a thing in town where we, we, we're in a college town. Uh, most of the students have gone back home with their families, but there's a contingent of students who live too far away to go home. So uh, last week, about 50 students were in the backyard of this house they'd all congregated there and they were basically having a party you know and they've got their you know their beer and everything and so everyone's filming them and saying they've got to stop you know and telling them to stop and they're not stopping you know so they're there and 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 uh, you know we have a fairly old population and 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 so people were really worried and there was this discussion about well what do we do because you know nobody really wants to call the police But when you tell them to stop, they don't stop. So they did end up calling the police and the police had to call them, had to tell them to stop. And then they had to come twice because they didn't stop. Um, And so it's, it's almost like what has happened is that this kind of baseline of what is socially acceptable, what you owe to other people and what they owe to you is not consistent um, across society. Um, and, you know, that's an above and beyond the relationship between people and the state. And it's like with that breaking down, um, it, it really kind of rips up the uh, social fabric. So what's interesting is that, you know, you get a lot of passive aggressive sniping um, about, you know, those people in the supermarket who are touching things, but not but taking the thing that they've touched. Um, and so in that sense, it's, it's really kind of bad. And then also, you know, you see it between states. So uh, the governor of Florida uh, invited everybody down for spring break, saying, you know, we don't have social distancing here. So all these college students came down and the beaches were crowded. And then the um, number of cases shot up. And Florida is the place where all the elderly people in America go to retire. So you've got a, a, a huge aging population. And now you have really bad, uh, you know, a rising number of, of cases. And it's like, you can see there's a lot of potential for blame there, you know, just frustration because nobody knows what's acceptable and what's not. Yeah, and if I, if I can come to you, because um, I've been struck, particularly in the UK, by the fact that the calls for locking down society have, have, 
um, pretty much come from people who I think would be considered more to the liberal and the left side of things. Whereas in Sweden, it looks a little bit different from that. And, and I, I don't think these things are black and white, by the way, actually. I, I, I do think there's, there's this kind of crossover. But as far as I can tell in Sweden, it's it's been the more uh, libertarian side of the things that have been asking for society to be more closed down. Yeah, I mean, there there have been some sort of unexpected political alliances pop, popping up here, I would say, over the last few weeks in terms of the strategy of locking down. I think it's hard to, like you said, it's, it's not really black and white, but I would definitely say that the, the sort of center-left people in Sweden generally seem to agree with the, uh, uh, the government strategy. Obviously, the government is a center-left government, so that might not be such a big surprise. But these, so I think that the calls for harder measures have been generally coming from people uh, who would probably identify as center right. Some some might be libertarian, some might be more liberal conservative. Which is so basically, you could say that it's we're sort of maybe jumping back about seven, eight years to the political situation we had in Sweden, where you had center-left versus center-right. Uh, over the last years, most of the debates have been about immigration and culture, and then those old sort of boundaries disappeared. But now we're, we're looking more at the sort of like an old-school uh, <laughs> uh, debate between social democrats and uh, liberal conservatives. But I also wanted to add that in, in terms of the discussing personal liberties and, and personal freedom, I mean, there hasn't really been a debate in Sweden about surveillance since uh, we have been sort of uh, the discussion is rather that okay uh, we need to stay at home because we don't want any crazy politician to get an idea that we should start acting like they do in china or whatever you know that we we want to keep we want to keep our freedom so that's the reason why we need to stay at home and and do like the voluntary social distancing instead but there, there haven't been any government proposals which would sort of uh, lead us into more of a surveillance state uh, is, is very much about still about the voluntary testing and stuff like that. So. And Matthew, um, in terms of uh, South Africa, I mean, it's obviously such a different situation, I think, to to the ones that we've experienced in Europe and, and, and Singapore, but kind of where does the balance of uh, liberties and uh, restrictions lie? Is there any sort of discussion going on about that just now? Um, surprisingly, at le- for me at least, almost no discussion, I think. Um, there's there's been a kind of uh, in an otherwise extremely fractured and divisive society. I mean, we've there's kind of been a unity of response to this. Um, you have radically different, truly radically different parties standing shoulder to shoulder, all announcing their support of the president. And my the CEO of my bank sent an email the other day with the, announcing the support that the bank had for the president. And then my law firm announces the support for the president. It's almost it's like this ritualistic response in any communication about how we all agree with this, the strong and stringent measures that have been taken. So when there are restrictions, and there's been profound, profound, of course, restrictions on almost every constitutional right that we have, people seem to suggest, well, obviously, that's not ideal, but this is necessary. What choice do we have? And I think that's very dangerous for a number of reasons. I mean, and for me, the most important one, I think, is that there's, I think, this misconception that this is somehow temporary. 
Um, but to use an analogous situation, I see, and this is why I think we should be very careful around that, the terminology like war. Well, uh, the, the threat of viruses and pandemics aren't going away. Um, the danger is, and I feel in, this, in South Africa, perhaps as much as anywhere else, the danger is that we will come to accept this is just the price we have to pay if we're going to be on guard against these sorts of threats in a similar way that sacrifices were made for the sake of the war on terror, another invisible enemy that you couldn't quite fight. This, this is just something that will become a structural feature of our lives. And before that happens, maybe it will happen anyway. Before that happens, you really do need to have these sorts of level-headed discussions about precisely what sorts of risks we're going to, are going to take um, to have and to, and to live out those other freedoms and, and values we think are important. And sadly, there's just almost no discussion here at present. We are only 13 days in, but so perhaps I'm asking too much too soon. But at two point to to date, there's very little. Yes, I think that's a really good point about the the kind of weighing up of what we're prepared to accept, and I think that discussion's got to come. I just wanted to ask, as someone who uh, works in the legal sphere, um, is there any sign of that discussion happening within your profession? Because I've been struck uh, in the UK by one of uh, you know at least some of the more uh, civil liberty minded lawyers have have uh, actually played quite an important part in the discussion here over the last three weeks and just sort of tempering some of the, the worst impulses of, of the power grab. So is, is that a discussion even within the legal sphere in South Africa? I mean, it's starting. Um, I'm trying to start it to some extent. Um, but insofar as it has existed so far, it's taken a particular form. It's, it's, it's le- been less of a, uh, an effort to debate the kind of structural aspects of how we're going about this and there's less of a concern for how we will deal with this in the future than there is with kind of case-by-case responses to particular abuses so there's uh, uh, violence on the part of the police here or the, the military oversteps there or this law is vague in this respect and those are then being challenged or pointed out which and of course that's important but that doesn't speak to or address the larger, and I think for me, more important uh, systemic questions as to whenever, for example, whenever a threat like this presents itself every few years, Corona or SARS or H1N1, whenever this new one comes along, is this, are we going to deal with it in the exact same way? Is this just part of our lives going forward? Because either you do this or well, as the saying goes, now, what else, what other choice do we have? Is, is that where we've come to? Um, I'd hope not, but uh, to arrive at any other answer, we actually have to start making these more, these more detached and theoretical, I suppose, discuss- start having more theoretical discussions like of this nature. Yeah, well, hopefully we can uh, host more discussions like that uh, at the Academy of Ideas and at, at Battle of Ideas. So um, I think we're more or less out of time, really. So maybe just a quick kind of uh, round round you all to finish, kind of what's what's on the horizon over the next uh, days and weeks. Uh, Stuart, shall I come to you first? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I'd really like to echo what Matt said there. I mean, the, the, the obvious next big question is how do we get out of this because we can't be on lockdown forever I don't think we've yet come to terms with how economically um, horrific this is going to be to shut the whole world almost down for a month is incredible and a month doesn't sound like it's going to be what happens 
So the the thing that frightens me is that is the lack of a civil society discussion on what are the alternatives, how do we move forward, what do we do next, and the answer seems to be that what we do next is more of the same, and that's really frightening. We cannot live like this for you know ever. Okay, Nancy, more of the same sounds like a terrible option for America just now. The impact of this will be different in different parts of the country, um, just because the conditions are so different in different states. And so, you know, we'll, uh, New York will come up with some way of, and they're already starting it, a way of helping businesses to ramp up again, but that's not going to work in the same way in Mississippi or in other parts of the country. So, so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of scary because if we, if we can't, do it everywhere, then it's going to bring down the places where it's had, where they've had some success. Um, And that's where you need central leadership. And, you know, rather than having the problem that I see in places like the UK or um, places where you have the authorities really wanting to clamp down and to kind of, you know, hang on to things, we don't have that authority. And so, um, you know, there's, there's no leadership and there's this just dynamic for chaos and that's worrying. Okay, um, Matthew, uh, just to come to you next, um, you, you know, you mentioned the desire to kickstart discussion and debate. Is, is, how is that done and what, you know, what are the opportunities in, in this period for doing that, do you think? Oh, it's, it's, it's difficult at the moment. I think uh, there's not really a, a climate that's receptive to those sorts of discussions. So every, anything that's done, I think, has to be done, unfortunately, relatively slowly and step by step, given the sorts of things about which I'm concerned, that's not necessarily the end of the world because they are longer term projects uh, when you're looking at institutional issues in the way that I think we need to look at them. Um, but the first thing from a more immediate and practical perspective, uh, the, the discussion needs to be had more seriously about what we do uh, when when the, the three-week lockdown technically comes to an end. Will it be extended in its current form? What will be the consequences of that? Uh, how, do, how does that weigh up against the, the benefits of that? And again, unfortunately, the, there's, very, there's very little debate about it. And to, what, to the extent that we've heard from uh, politicians on this front, or even, for, even from our president, there doesn't seem to be at least an express awareness of the complexity of these sorts of issues, I don't think. Um, for exa- just for example, and just to finish off, uh, when the president the other day said that they will be reviewing what to happen next, essentially the statement was made, we will, we will listen to the science, and we all know the, the science can give you facts, but it doesn't tell you what to do. So I find that quite worrying. But I do, I do have hope that, uh, as we must, um, because as uh, Stuart said, this can't, this can't go on forever, either factually or from a quality of life perspective. Yeah, I think, I mean, personally, I think one of the benefits of this period, if we, if we can take something out of it, is the ability to discuss these things more widely over forums like uh, Zoom, which seem to have sprung up widely. And I find myself in, in discussions these days, um, not just with people that I might have met in a room in, in London, uh, but people who are from all over Britain and uh, increasingly bringing people from abroad into discussions as well. So it does, on that level at least, there does seem to be interesting possibilities for, for kind of wider political discussion but you and if I can just um, come to you and and, and finish with you um, 
I personally have been um, very heartened by the fact that Sweden has chosen a, a different route through all of this. It does seem to me to be a, a particularly positive thing, just even from a basic point of view of demonstrating that there are possibilities uh, and and choices to be made. That very idea of of us having to take a choice seems to me to be a good thing. But um, where where's uh, what's next for you, and where where do you see this going over the next uh, weeks ahead? In terms of what you said, I think there it would be probably a good thing now if um, all the, all the countries that look to Sweden sort of uh, in in a slightly appalled way, what are they doing? <laughs> I mean, things look okay for now, so. Let's let's assume. I mean, I, I might have to regret. I might regret saying this later, but let's assume that we come out uh, okay on the other side. <laughs> Sweden still exists in a month, month or two. <laughs> then, uh, I mean, then I would suggest also the, uh, for for people to look at not necessarily the strategy uh, during Corona, uh, during the Corona crisis, but also what was it that made that strategy possible. So. You know, pretty much where I started in this discussion, that the, um, uh, Sweden is a country, a high trust country, where people trust in, uh, have trust in institutions and and, and government, uh, and that is obviously something that takes uh, centuries to build. But uh, there are also some quite uh, obvious ways that uh, it has been done in this country. So I think that it, maybe Sweden could be an inspiration in, in terms of. Uh, how to how to actually govern you know on a, on a very general scale where are we going f- from from here i think that if this doesn't go on for uh, more than a few months i think that this country is probably in pretty good shape to sort of restart again and uh, not going into recession but yeah we'll we'll see where it goes obviously i think we uh, need to leave it there thanks very much to you all for uh, some fascinating contributions Hope you enjoyed that glimpse into how countries across the world are responding to coronavirus. We'll be back soon with further international perspectives. If you want to find out more about what the Academy of Ideas is up to during this lockdown, then do check out our website at academyofideas.org.uk. There you can find details of a growing number of salon discussions, forums, debates and book clubs which are moving online. I hope you can join us in at least some of them. Meantime, enjoy the Easter break and we'll return afterwards with more podcasts of ideas.